Hi, I'm Gillian. And I'm Pierre, and you're listening to Breaking Through Careers, the podcast that gets your career questions answered. Each episode, we speak to an ordinary person from a well-known or not so well-known profession so that we can find out what they do on a day-to-day basis and what they did in order to get there. What do you most like what about you your job? What do you actually do day-to-day? What advice would you give someone? What do you find most challenging about your job? How do you balance your family Tell us something that you're career. really good Tell at. Tell us something you're really bad at. How much do you at? get paid? So today we're asking, what on earth is a strategic shareholdings consultant and what does one actually do? Today, Fernando will be telling us about what he does and how he ended up in such a unique job. Fernando will be helping us on work-life balance, working with international colleagues and tips on international scholarships. What are you looking forward to learning from our guest Fernando today? I'm just looking forward to understand what he does, his role and the step he took to become where he is today and also find out about himself. What kind of client does he deal with and what involved in his jobs? What about you? What are you looking forward to? I don't know. When you think of the title strategic shareholdings consultant, it kind of feels like it's one of those jobs where you have to be really serious all the time. And it's a bunch of men in really uncomfortable suits. Does he wear suits as well? Or is just like, is he one of those dudes? just off the grid. I don't know. <laughs> so let's, let's welcome our spy, Fernando. Hey, Fernando, how are you? Hi, Gillian. Hey, Fernando, how are you doing? Hi, Pierre. I'm good, thanks. Good, good. How's the week been so far? Let's just say I'm thankful it was over, but we're starting tomorrow again. So ready to go. We'll start off with our quick fire round. So we'll ask and you respond as quickly as possible with the first answer that comes into your mind. Ready? Ready. Do you prefer running or cycling? Running. What's your favourite colour? Blue. How long do you think the Great Wall of China is? 50 miles. It's 13,000 miles. Oh God. What are you reading right now? Or what was the last book you read? I'm reading a book called Sapiens. So it's about the history of humankind. It focuses on our societal behaviours. It's really good. If you could have lunch with any influential person, alive or late, who would it be? I would have lunch with Angela Merkel. What's your favorite word and why? It could be either in English or Spanish. Action. I think I'm someone who always needs to be doing something. Prefer the theater or the cinema? The cinema. Your favorite hobby? I really like to travel. Well, when we were allowed to travel. So I guess you might need to change the hobbies then. How many countries do you think are in Africa? Let's say 45. Not bad. If you flip the numbers, it's 54. If you want a million dollar, what will you do with it? Okay, I guess the right answer is I would donate 20%, but probably I wouldn't. I think the first thing I would do is I would book a very expensive trip for me and my whole family to go like the Maldives or something like that. And then I would consider philanthropy after that. You still come out looking like a good person there. So it's all good. Where do you live and what city are you from? So I live in Edinburgh, Scotland, but I am originally from Guatemala City in Central America. And what brought you over to the UK from such a wonderful place? So I had finished university. Uh, I went back to Guatemala after I finished university and I was working there for a year and decided I had enough of work after one year and wanted to do a master's. So I got a scholarship to come to the UK. Why did you agree to come on our podcast? I think it's very important that young people get a different view of what different professions are and how to get them there. I think that 10 years ago when I was starting, I wish I would have other people telling me more about options. So I hope this podcast does that for people. What's your job and what sort of organization do you work for? 
So I work for a large global asset management company in the UK, and I work as a consultant in a department called Strategic Shareholdings. And did you know what you wanted to be when you grew up back when you were at school? When I was in high school, I wanted, well, I thought I wanted to be a systems engineer. But that was just because I had an uncle who was a systems engineer who was very successful and who was the first person in the family that went to uni. So it was like, oh, you have to be like him because he made money. Were there some skills or traits you had when you were young? And what kind of kid were you? I was just very nerdy for focus on academics, I would say. I was never good at sports or anything like that. So I guess my reaction to that was, where can I be good at? And I, I was really good academically and I could exceed in that. So I just focused on that. And just briefly, actually, on that. So did you excel at particular subjects or were you sort of good across the board? And did you have a particular sub- favorite subject at school? Probably like math. And I really enjoy like the history courses as well. And I was good at it as well. But that, that was the one that I really, really liked. Was there anybody else that helped you along the way? I was lucky enough. My mother was a teacher as well. She created this structure that just embedded in my brain, you know, and that mental framework that allows you to tackle problems when you're at school. What kind of framework can you share with us or with the audience? It was probably more a discipline and routine, you know, of how you do things. I remember so vividly when I was learning English, for example, she didn't know any English, but we would make flashcards. And every day it was about learning 10 new words. And it was just that concept of organizing your Yourself, even if you don't know how to do it. But if you organize yourself, you'll find the solution somehow. So in our next section, we're just going to try and get a better understanding of your current role. What was your route from the age of 16 to where you are now career-wise? Okay, 14 years. I graduated in Guatemala and I knew that I needed to get a scholarship to go to uni because we didn't have the financial situation to, to do that. And I really wanted to go abroad. I didn't want to study in Guatemala. I knew that I had to somehow differentiate myself among other people because when you're competing for scholarships, it's not just you have good grades. You have to prove that you have done something else. So I did an internship with the European Union Embassy when I was 16. I was like the assistant of the assistant of the assistant manager, you know. But it was just such a good experience to like be with adults and hear the conversations uh, because you were in the middle of it. I applied for this scholarship and I went to the U.S. Came back after four years. I studied management and marketing, um, came back to Guatemala and worked for one year as a project manager for Walmart, actually, in Central America. And after that, I, I said, you know what, I, I really like this project management thing, so, but I want to educate myself a little bit more on it. So I applied to another scholarship through the European Union and I got that. So I came to Europe and did my master's here which led me at the end of that master's to get a job at my current company as a project manager graduate. Seeing you as such a guru at getting all the scholarship, how do you, <laughs> how do you advise a young... What's, yeah, the what's the secret? How do you advise a young <laughs> individual from Guatemala or someplace to be so consistent in getting all the application in and getting it all of jobs? <laughs> I truly believe that it's about planning ahead. When I applied for my scholarship, when I was 18, I knew when I was 14, 15, that I I was going to do that. So I kind of like built myself to be as competitive as possible when I was 18. 
I got involved in the science club, the math club. I was helping charities try to do as much as possible. So when a panel assesses you and there's another guy who has a hundred on everything, it's like, okay, but this guy has done everything else. So you, so you show you can do more than, than someone else. And those scholarships you can find, do you go online? Are they through your school? Both are were online, but I didn't find them online. So the first one, it was one of my mother's friends who told her about it. And she was like, your, your kid's smart, get him applied to it. So then I saw it and it was just, you know, it was a great scholarship. There's not as many scholarships as people think. But then when you start digging, actually, there are, now there's way more than 12 years ago. And with the internet, you know, you have many platforms that help you on what topic, on how much scholarship you actually want, on which country, etc. So there's a lot at the moment. Is it necessary to go to university to become a strategic shareholding consultant? It's a very tricky one because my colleagues, all of us have university degrees. And if you would focus only on the consultant piece, most of consultants will have a university degree or because they have been in the industry for so long that they become experts in a topic. So it could be, I don't know, operational resilience, you know, and then you consult on that specific topic. And maybe for that, you don't need a university degree. I suppose now would be a good time for us to ask, what exactly is a consultant working in strategic shareholdings? <laughs> so a consultant is someone who answers questions. So you have big questions in companies, usually related to strategy. So where do we want to go next? Or we have this problem or we have this new market trend. Let's answer a question. So a consultant will usually start with, you know, what's your, your essay question? And you, you take it from there. And now with strategic shareholdings, I guess people call it different things in different companies. But what I actually do is when our company believes that to achieve their objectives, they need to partner with another company somewhere else that has that capability to do that, or they are in a market that we cannot be for X or Y reason. So my role as a consultant is to work with those companies to make sure that we're meeting objectives. So you mentioned that you work in financial services. What other types of organizations might need a strategic shareholding division? I think every industry has them and they call, they're called differently. So some are, are called strategic investments or strategic partnerships or strategic shareholdings. For us, it's called strategic shareholding because we own equity on them. But take Uber, for example, they have partners everywhere. Google, they have partners everywhere. Many companies will have a partner where they think that it's not their core capability to do it. So they just get someone who's good at it already to do it. How easy or difficult do you think somebody coming from totally different industry can transfer the skill to be as a strategic uh, shareholding consultant? That's a really interesting question because all of the members of the team I'm part of, none of us were strategic consultants before. You know, we, we all came from different backgrounds. I have one, uh, two that are actuaries, one that it's, uh, comes from a risk perspective, and I was a project manager before. So if you put all our skills together, actually, it's a really diverse team. I brought a lot of planning, business benefits, understanding what we want to do. Others bring risk management into it. Others bring actuarial services into it. So we all had skills that were transferred into what we do today. But you need to be open as well to develop them or learn new skills when you're in the job.
And just briefly for our listeners, what exactly is an actuary in a sentence or two? An actuary. Oh, God. I, so I didn't know they existed until like t- two years ago. For me, it was a new species of human. So I really do not know even how to describe them, but they work in life insurance companies and they are like experts on statistics, I would say, you know, they create all these models to know when you're going to die. And they work with companies to, to understand understand customer needs and create products that are good for them. So I'm sure your day job keeps you very busy, but are you involved in any other activities aside from your day job at work? I'm involved in an ethnicity and multiculturalism employee network. And we are basically a group of people who are volunteers that work with the company on the ethnicity agenda. And how can we progress as a company on that? And what does that involve? First of all, it involves engaging with the members and our core team to define where do we want to go next as a company and then which initiatives do we want to propose to the company. And then I work a lot with our executives so we can see where does our ask fits within the overall business and what resources are needed to do that and who is going to do that. Obviously, since COVID has given us a new way of working going forward, what is your average day like? I have a dog. I have a Labrador. So he comes at 6 a.m. and just like looks at me. I need to go out, you know. Uh, so I wake up early between 6.20 and 6.30. I'm up and I take the dog out for a walk. And usually I will you know, take a shower and then at 7 I'm I'm logged in already. So I start at seven so I can finish earlier because I work with a lot of uh, Chinese colleagues and Indian colleagues and Singaporean colleagues. It's really good that I start earlier because then it gives me a little bit more hours with them. So usually there's a lot of calls from like eight to 10-ish because that's when they are available. And then I will usually take a break from like 11 to like one because I started earlier. So I work out usually during those hours. And then hopefully in the afternoon, it's like get to do some work, but usually it's more meetings. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my day. I usually finish like at five. And pre and post COVID, what would your work environment be like? What would you be wearing? Because I think so many people in their minds would think that you'd be in a stuffy office wearing really uncomfortable suits, looking serious all the time. What is your work environment? So I think that was true. I think that was true. Uh, (laughs) Wearing uncomfortable ties, you know. But I think even before COVID, there has been a shift in financial services of what you wear and people still wear ties and people still wear suits. But a lot of companies have moved to wear what you feel is appropriate for the day. You know, if you're meeting a client, then you will dress appropriately. But if you're going to be in front of your computer for eight hours, what's the point of choking yourself with a tie? Why do you think that shift has come now? I think financial services has had this elitist, high class, you know, persona for so many years because you're managing money at the end, you know, it's, it's wealth. So it had that perception. But I think people realize that, you know, it's, it's not adding any value to the actual work. Like, seriously, am I going to be more productive because I'm wearing a suit? Probably not. And I think that new companies, you know, like especially our generation thinks differently. You know, it's not the same. And you have other companies that have been more progressive on it. So people start comparing. And I think in the last two, three years, you have seen a shift on that, definitely. It sounds like your job can be quite flexible at the minute. How easy do you think it would be to manage your role and a family? I do not have kids, so I cannot 
comment personally on that, but I see it with my colleagues. So some have kids and it's flexible enough to do the work, but this is so dependent on the company you work for and the culture in the company. So you feel comfortable to do that. If you need to take an hour to do something else, you just do it. It's focused on deliverables and adding value rather than me sitting there with my link on green all the time, you know, and moving my mouse every five minutes so people see that I'm online. That has no value at all. So some people might struggle, especially consultants. There is a concept of like you work long hours and that is true probably for like big four companies. And by big four, I mean, you know, the PwC, Deloitte, EY, and all of them. You might need to bring one of them to ask them personally. But from my perspective, as a client of them, sometimes, you know, they they do work long hours and it could be a challenge for a family. What do you like and don't like about your job? What I love about the job is how international it is. And that's what probably took me to apply for it because I knew that the majority of it was going to be dealing with outside the UK. I really like that. And what I do not like that much about the job, I wish I could travel more, but at the moment I can't. And what would you say you find most challenging about your job? The majority of issues that we deal with are commercially sensitive. So there's there's a big seriousness around each topic we deal with. And I mean, you're a professional at the end and you're not going to be talking about those things because I mean, you're bound by contract and, and they're commercially sensitive. It brings some kind of additional pressure on you uh, because of that. There are big questions that could have big impact, you know, on, on customers, clients, shareholders and partners. What skills do a person need to become a good strategic shareholding consultant? You need to be resilient, I would say. And why I say that is because you're usually dealing with executives, you're dealing with C-suite level people. You know, you're going to propose something and they're going to destroy it. That's how it works. And then you're going to have to go back and do it again. So you need to be resilient to not take it personal. It's just work. And we're all here looking for, you know, the best outcome of everything. And it, it's really difficult at the start to do that because it's your work. You know, no, this is not good or something. So you need to move on and be resilient. And is there anything about your job that surprises you? It's always something new. That's the interesting part, but that's the difficult part as well. Because it's something that not many people have considered before. So that's the key challenge. Okay, so we're quite excited to have a strategic shareholdings consultant in the room. So I think we're going to drill down into a few subject specific things. Firstly, for our listeners, what is a strategy and what is a shareholding? Going back to basics. Strategy is a, I mean, even if you go back in history, you know, strategy was a military term. It was all about planning. How do you use your resources and how you position yourself to defeat your enemy? It's, it's a Greek word. It has been adopted by businesses, you know, in the last century, probably, to do almost the same, but not that bloody. It's about your ability to make choices, to make yourself different and put yourself in a position that you can leverage. That is strategy, in my view. And the shareholding? So if you think about a company, that it's one entity, that will have different owners, what we call equity. A shareholding itself is, let's say, Gillian, Pierre and I, we all own a company and Gillian owns 
15% of that. So her shareholding of it is 15%. When we say shareholdings is that we own a stake, a piece of another company. What is the difference between an investment where an investor may buy a tiny of many companies and a company strategist shareholders? Again, I think this is something that is very dependent on each company. But how we see it is if a company makes an investment on something, it's because you're probably just concerned about the financial return of it. So you're there just for the cash. What we see as strategic shareholdings is you're there also for you know the, the return on investment, but you're also there to help you achieve certain strategic objectives. So let's say enter a different market or tackle a new proposition or offer products that you cannot offer. You spoke earlier about your average day and speaking to your colleagues in India and China. Can you talk us through a project that you might work on or a specific task? What are those calls? What are you saying in those calls? And what is your boss asking you to do? Hypothetically, we could say my company is looking to launch, let's say, a new proposition in Malaysia. We do not own anything there. So I'm using that as an example. So our calls could be about understanding the market trends. So what's happening there? Are there any gaps in the market at the moment? What's out there already? What are competitors doing? Do we really want to go into the market? Why do we want to go into the market? How does that align into our strategy? Is it complementary or is it something new? Do we need to do a full business plan, you know, of what the revenues will be in the next 10 years? What resources do we need to deploy to get there? It's that kind of conversations. Sounds interesting. What is JV? JV is a joint venture. So basically, let's say that you own a car company in Australia and I own, let's say, a GPS company in New Zealand. We have realized that there is a gap in the market for cars with incorporated GPSs in Australia. So you and I will say, let's create a new company with both of our capabilities to achieve this objective. So you will own 50% of the new company and I will own 50% of the new company, but it's a brand new company. So the new company is not restricted by what I want to achieve in New Zealand and what you want to achieve in Australia with your cars. So it's a completely new thing created by two or three entities that give them resources to independently achieve something. What is the starting salary for a consultant working strategic investments or strategic shareholdings? And what would the average be and what could you hope to earn at the top end? It's going to be very different on industries. But a consultant itself, I think probably the starting would be maybe 50k uh, in pounds could be there. Not entering as a graduate, but you have maybe three years experience at least. Average could be around... 70. And I don't think there's an upper limit, to be honest. The thing is consultants, because you can have someone, let's say, that has worked or has been even a CEO for many years that becomes a consultant, and then his fees were going to be like crazy. But for my team, there is definitely a limit, probably, which I do not know. I'll investigate it with my boss in my next end year review. What do you say is a clear structure to the top? For consultants, you usually have, if you follow the typical consultancy firm structure is, 
you're an associate first, then you can become a, an analyst, and then you can be, they're all consultants, but they just call them some different things. Then you're a consultant, then a senior consultant, then a manager, then a senior manager, then a director, and then you can become a partner. That's the, the usual, you know, route in a consultancy firm. For me, in my in, where I work, that doesn't really exist. So probably, you know, if I want to move up the corporate ladder, I probably need to move into something very specific. I need to get out of this consultant role and maybe take a leading role in delivering one of the projects maybe I was designing. That could be the next step. To become a consultant, you can't go as a graduate. You're going to have to kind of gain the experience in a way. No, you can. So there's graduate programs that you can apply to for consultancy firms. What, what sort of job would they be doing? Oh, they would be doing the job that the more senior people don't want to do. <laughs> I think in the actual industry, there's not going to be many graduate programs for consultants. I think if you want a graduate program for consultants, you need to go into a consultancy firm. And what would you say is the most common reason for people failing to get into consulting or for people getting into consulting and then leaving? It's because people think it's going to be too many long hours, it's too much pressure, it's, it's just not sustainable. I think that's the main reason. And I think that's the main reason why people leave as well. <laughs> Kidding aside, I think people leave because you realize that, you know, you're always answering these this big questions and you're almost handing over to someone else to actually implement it. And actually, there's a lot of fun and learning in actually implementing something, which consultants usually don't do because you kind of like hand over to your client. So people might want to, to actually get experience implementing that at some point. For yourself, what do you wish you would have known before starting your first job? Oh, so my first job, planning and project manager for Walmart. I didn't know anything about the job, to be honest, when I applied to it. I, I just went for it because uh, it sounded interesting. I wish I knew more about financial planning and that kind of things because it, that job specifically had a lot on that and I just didn't know anything about it. But I guess something that maybe relates more to your audience is the cultural aspect of doing a job. Because I was so young, I was not aware of working environment. You know, how are you meant to be behaving with senior people? And when I did my first job in the UK, also you add the layer of it's a different country. So how do people like to communicate? How do they want to be told certain things? Guatemalans and British people are very different, you know, and I had to learn by just trying and sometimes could have been nicer if I knew how to deal with British people. What are the differences? What are the different have you found? I am more direct on saying things. If I think something is wrong, I'll just say, you know, this is wrong. But someone from Great Britain, they will tell you, oh, maybe, you know, this could have been done better. And I would have. You go around the corners so many times to say something. How would you recommend someone go about avoid making those sorts of mistakes? Try to understand how to communicate with people, A, in the workplace and B, in a workplace which may be in a different culture, country? So important to have mentors because these people can actually, you know, guide you through what's right and wrong in the parameters of the organizational culture and the country's culture. You also need to have judgment. You don't want to change yourself totally because you're adding value as well by being different. 
and by not just being the same as everybody else. So don't change yourself totally, because sometimes you do need to challenge directly. And even if people don't like it, they will appreciate it later. You mentioned mentoring. From somebody who's coming from a more cultural background, how do you go about finding a, a mentor or how did you find a mentor? I think the beauty of big companies like the YM is usually existing programs. So they're there. They are employee networks like the one I'm part of that offer mentoring programs. So they match you with someone. But if that doesn't exist, I think it's very important that you ask for it. So go to your manager and say, hey, I have identified that I'm not good at this at that or I could be better at this or I would like to know more about this. Could you help me find someone? And usually, you know, a manager that is a good manager that wants to develop you will look for that. Would a manager assign you, like, let's say, obviously within a company itself, their structure, would the manager said, yes, this person is ahead of you, that could be your mentor or would that be chosen in a different format? I think how it should work is like the person helping you match you with a mentor, they should really understand what your needs are. It's not just matching you with a more senior person. Because that senior person could have the same gaps that you do. So what's the point of doing that? So i give you an example. I was a graduate in uh, change and IT. So I wanted to learn more about the front office. And what we call the front office in financial services are the people managing the money. So I went to my manager and I said, you know, I would like to know more about this. She had a contact with someone who was still young, but had at least 10 more years experience than me uh, in the front office. They talked to each other and she was my mentor for like two and a half years, maybe, uh, and really helped me understand a different part of the business. This section is Miss Bassin question, where we just ask you question which related to your industry. What do we try to do in this section? Virtually, is just to try to tackle some of the stereotype associated with your industry. Shareholders think short term only. More myth or more of a fact? I think that's more of a myth. I think shareholders will usually are there for the long term. Consulting, working in finance, work really long hours. Myth or fact? The answer is in a gray area of myth and fact. It depends. It varies depending on the month, week and day. All shareholders are rich, posh, white males. Myth or fact? I think, okay, let's break that down. All shareholders are rich. Probably true because you need to have you know, capital to invest. Depending on how much capital you're investing, that's your level of wealth, I guess. White uh, data shows that, you know, wealth is concentrated on white people. So probably that's true as well. But there are investors everywhere in the world who are not white as well. And the posh and the male. It goes back to the white one because usually there will be a big percentage of, and when when you say posh, I'm assuming, you know, it's an upper class population. So yeah, I think there is some true on that. And do you think the industry is moving? Do you think there's a shift in wealth at all? Do you think this is changing? I'm not an expert on it, Gillian, but what I see in the news and in reports is that the wealth gap actually is not getting better. It's actually, you know, it's expanding. And you see that when you see 10, you know, richest billionaires in the world own, you know, a massive percentage of wealth and the 10 of them are white males. How about those who work in the industry? Do you think we're making progress there? I think there is progress on it, Gillian. It's very slow progress, but there has been progress. 
I think there is a question now for companies on how much they want to accelerate that because that's under control. They can actually do that. And there are a lot of benefits for companies for doing that, not only from an employee perspective, but on how they serve their clients and customers. So it's a choice for them. And you have seen, especially in the last three months, more companies taking accelerated actions on that. Everyone in investment is greedy and rich. Myth or fact? I think that's a myth. I don't think everybody is greedy and rich. You have a real variety of people, you know, of different backgrounds. Even if the majority are white, not all of them went to the same school or, or same background. Just in that as well, I talk about greed. I guess there's this word being thrown around now, which is called an ethical investment. Like, how has that been going? I guess because that's also kind of flow within the greed itself or, you know, because if you put something like invest your money in weaponry, you know, you can get a lot of money for that, but that's kind of greedy in a way. From a pure technical perspective, a lot of companies in the last years have been offering what we call ESG products that are environmental. So they, they look at the environment, society and governability of companies and they assess problems like the ones you are outlining there. And some clients want their money to be invested in things that, let's say, don't invest in weapons or don't invest in tobacco or things like that. So there are a lot of products that tackle those issues. I, I guess there is a also a moral question of you as a person, but that's probably a different debate. And I think the important thing is that you have the choice because there is the democratization of how you invest your money. And if there is an option there, you invest there. That's really good. That's really important, I guess. Yeah. Thanks for that. Shareholders only think about the financial return and not the long-term prospects of a company or the well-being of the staff. That's a myth. Probably there's a lot of facts of that in history, just because of the concept of capitalism and how capitalism has ended up. But you have, in the last years, you see a shift into actually companies having to take care of their stakeholders rather than their shareholders. Yeah, So it's a broader scope now for companies. So it's not the people that own your company, but your environment, your employees, your clients, customers. So it's, it's a whole ecosystem companies actually impact on. And I think companies are more aware of that. Our final section is called Looking Forward. And essentially, we're going to try and help our listeners get an understanding of what they need to do to get to where you are now. To begin with, what kind of work experience should our listeners try to get before entering both consulting and financial services? I think graduate programs are a really good routes to jobs that what I'm doing at the moment. I am conscious that not everybody at the end will get a graduate program because there's limited. But I think if you can look at graduate programs because they offer you an array of options at the end and gives you two years to really decide what you want to do. What are the three things that you want our listeners to get out of this episode? First of all, think about your transferable skills. If you have started doing a job for one or two years, that doesn't mean that you're stuck there. Sit down and really list what skills you have. I am pretty sure those skills can be used somewhere else if you sell them well, you know, and you really think them through. The second point is your ability to tell stories. It doesn't matter in what job you are, but if you're really good at telling a story, people will really engage with you and they will see the value that you bring because you take them from zero to 10 was the output of everything you did. So I think that's something important to consider. And the third is invest in yourself. And that doesn't mean go and pay a really expensive MBA, but you know, there's so much material online. There's free courses on strategy, on consultancy, on whatever you want. You know, there's a lot of platforms that are actually free that you can sit down in your free time and invest one hour a day and make yourself look different than others so you're in a better position to get a job. 
thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. I think we've learned a lot today. So we appreciate it. Thank you, Gillian and Pierre. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next episode as we explore yet another profession. Your support is always appreciated. So please subscribe to Breaking Through Career Podcast and find us on social media. Also, don't forget to check out the resource hub at www.breakingthroughcareers.com where you can find advice for school leavers, university students and career changers. I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better. Maya Angelou. See See you you next time. time.